praise Yahweh. Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Bring back all the studies that I've done to memory. I pray You'd correct me where I'm wrong, encourage me where I'm right, and keep me humble through it all. Father, help us to be a light to the world and an example to people that we meet every day. Let us be a light that shines in their path and doesn't blind them in their eyes. Thank You most of all, Father Yahweh, for Your Son, Yeshua. It is through Him I pray. Amen. Psalm 37. I have it on the screen if you'd like to follow along with me in the Scriptures. We're going to stay mostly in the Older Testament today. I told somebody one time the New Testament is old too. It's about 2,000 years old. Not quite as old as the Old Testament, but... (laughs) It's going to be mostly in the Older Testament or the Tanakh today. We'll begin with Psalm 37. I'd like to read this chapter I have on the screen from the World English Bible. Don't fret because of evildoers, neither be envious against those who work unrighteousness, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good and dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Also delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust also in Him and He will do this. He will make your righteousness go out as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. Rest in Yahweh. Wait patiently for Him. Don't fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who makes wicked plots happen. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. For yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Yes, though you look for his place, he is not there. But the humble shall inherit the land, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The master will laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to kill those who are upright on the path their sword shall enter into their own heart their bows shall be broken better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken but Yahweh upholds the righteous Yahweh knows the days of the perfect their inheritance shall be forever they shall not be disappointed in the time of evil in the days of famine they shall be satisfied but the wicked shall perish The enemies of Yahweh shall be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. The wicked borrow and don't pay back, but the righteous give generously. For such as are blessed by Him shall inherit the land. Those who are cursed by Him shall be cut off. A man's goings are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. Though he stumble, he shall not fall, for Yahweh holds him up with his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. All day long he deals graciously and lends. His offspring is blessed. Depart from evil and do good. Live securely forever. For Yahweh loves justice and doesn't forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. 
The righteous shall inherit the land and live in it forever. The mouth of the righteous talks of wisdom. His tongue speaks of justice. The law of His Almighty is in His heart. None of His steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to kill him. Yahweh will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait for Yahweh and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power spreading himself like a green tree in its native soil. But he passed away. Behold, he was not. Yes, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man and see the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. As for transgressors, they shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Yahweh helps them and rescues them. He rescues them from the wicked and saves them because they have taken refuge in Him. Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Last week we began a series inside of a series. So I've been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and we came to verse 22, 29, and 30. And there we have the word hell mentioned three times. And one time the word fire is mentioned in with hell. It uses hell fire in Matthew 5, verse 22. In each of these three verses, Yeshua uses a word that has Hebrew origins. It is the word Gehenna. Uh, this is a compound word taken from two words, gay and Hinnom, in Hebrew, which means the valley or the gorge of Hinnom. This was a valley in the Old Testament that pagans, sometimes pagan heathen Israelites, apostate Israelites, used in their worship of the deity Moloch. They would burn their little children in the fire to Moloch in the valley of Hinnom. And Yahweh said in Jeremiah 7, I know it's called the valley of Hinnom now, but... One day it will no longer be called that, but it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. For this is where I will perform my judgments. We fast forward into the New Testament time period, and when Yeshua used this word, outside of the city of Jerusalem, just south, was the refuse dump or the garbage dump of the city. And it was called Gehenna. And in Gehenna, there were fires. There had to be fires because when you throw dump and dead bodies of animals and garbage and sometimes the dead bodies of criminals, it can get pretty putrid. get pretty gnarly, right? Pretty smelly. So there was fires that were kept burning all the time. Like a smoldering flame, a smoldering furnace. And everything that got thrown into Gehenna was consumed. So when the Israelites or the Jewish people would hear Yeshua use this word, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, their minds would go straight to that valley. Their minds wouldn't go under the ground where Satan had his pitchfork and he was poking somebody in the tail. That's not where their minds would go. Their minds would go to the valley outside of Jerusalem. Yeshua is using that valley. Israelites would have known the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 19, Valley of Hinnom. They would have known all of that. They would have understood Yeshua. We talked about that there were three views of the destiny or the judgment of the wicked. The first most popular view is eternal conscious torment. That is that the wicked will finally be thrown into hell, a lake of fire, and they will burn there consciously forever and ever and ever without end. They will be tormented. And 
the most common view inside of this view is that when somebody dies now as an unbeliever or a wicked person, they immediately go to that place and they've been burning. So I heard one preacher one time say that his relative, it might have been his dad or his uncle, I can't remember, but he had a relative that was an unbeliever. And he said, my dad died as an unbeliever. He was a wicked man and he's been burning for the last 21 years in hell. I heard a preacher say that. Um, it's not a pretty thought. We, I would have no problem believing it if I thought that the Bible taught that. But I don't think the Bible teaches that. The second view is universal reconciliation. That is that everybody will eventually be saved. Some say even Satan and the demons will eventually be reconciled to the Almighty. That's the least held view. And then the one right in the middle, which is usually where I find myself landing, is the view called annihilationism or conditional immortality. And that is that the wicked will be raised on the last day for the purpose of being judged. I think John chapter 5 talks about this. All that are in the graves shall hear the voice of the Son of Man. Some will rise to eternal life and some will rise to judgment and destruction. Something like that. That's the Brother Matthew translation going by memory. But this view says that after there is punishment that fits the life or the sins of those that are wicked, the final punishment for all unbelievers is death. This brought us to Romans 6.23 and John 3.16, two verses that most believers know that really have never thought about this in relation to eternal judgment. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. So the two options for the wicked and the righteous are death and life. We know that has to be talking about the second death, not the first death, because there are many righteous people that have lived that have died the first death. But they won't have to die the second death. They'll get eternal life. Same thing with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Notice the difference is there are some people who will have to perish, but there are others who will have eternal life or life in the age to come. Eternal life, the word eternal is both, it has both a quality and a quantity. Uh, scholars call it qualitative and quantitative. Eternal life doesn't just mean without end. It also means life in the age to come. Life like we've never experienced it before. The blessed life. The perfect life. Revelation 21 speaks of this life. No more sorrow. No more aches. No more pains. No more hurts. No more tears. All the former things have passed away. Oh, what a great day that is going to be. <laughs> what a great day that's going to be. Praise Yahweh. Then finally, we looked at what does the Old Testament say. I told you that most scholars and commentators that at least I've looked at in commentaries and dictionaries over the years have said that the Old Testament does not have a lot to say about the judgment, the final judgment of the wicked. But I think it's because they're looking in the Old Testament for eternal conscious torment and they don't find it in the Old Testament. They say it mentions it once or twice, maybe Daniel 12, maybe Isaiah 66. We went over Isaiah last week where Isaiah talked about the judgment brought on Yahweh slaying the wicked and that the righteous would look upon dead bodies or corpses, carcasses, not people that were burning, ooching and ouching forever and ever. We looked at Malachi 4, 1-3, and then of course Isaiah 66, 15-24, and we saw the word pictures there lended credence to the view of annihilation. 
to death and to destruction. So today, I want to begin by going back to Psalm 37. I read that chapter in total at the beginning of the sermon because it tells us the difference between the righteous and the wicked so clearly and so much. For instance, it says that the wicked, these are all descriptions of the wicked, will be cut down like grass and wither like a green herb. Evildoers shall be cut off. The wicked will be no more. The wicked shall perish. They will vanish like smoke. The wicked shall pass away, could not be found. Transgressors shall be destroyed. We have word picture after word picture in Psalm 37 that speaks of destruction, not of ongoing torment. Now some people say, when you quote Psalm 37 to them in this light, they'll say, well, what you don't understand is that's for the here and now. That's for the here and now that the righteous flourish. They inherit the land now and the wicked are destroyed. But the problem with that is that we all know that in the life that we live, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes we see righteous people whose lives are cut short. Sometimes we see righteous people who are poor and wicked people who are rich. And sometimes we see wicked people who live long lives and prosperous lives and don't really have any problem with sickness, disease, don't really have any problem at all. So I don't think that we find Psalm 37's ultimate fulfillment in the here and now, but we will find it in the here and after. Ultimately, the righteous will inherit the land and the wicked will vanish like smoke. They'll be cut off and they will be no more. So while some of the blessings for the righteous and the cursings for the wicked are now, it doesn't always take place like that. We must look for its ultimate fulfillment. Psalm 37's ultimate fulfillment is at the final day. As a matter of fact, within Psalm 37, we find that that portion is quoted by Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, or, Oh, how happy are you, or, Oh, how blessed are you, when He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 37. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they'll inherit the land. And Yeshua is talking about the kingdom, because if you look at the Beatitudes there, He mentions inheriting the kingdom in one sentence, and then inheriting the earth or the land, which is the renewed earth, in another sentence. So kingdom of heaven and the earth are one and the same inheritance on that great and final day where the wicked are judged and the righteous are given everlasting life. The next thing I want to go to tonight is more Old Testament examples. And I want to spend more time in the Old Testament because, like I said, most of the time the Old Testament kind of gets pushed away when we talk about hell and judgment and things of that nature. Again, it seems that the scholars who say the Old Testament doesn't have much to say about final judgment aren't taking the time to look. Remember, they are taking the view that they have already and then they're trying to find that view in the Old Testament. When they can't find it, they say, well, it's not really in the Old Testament, but it gets real clear in the New Testament, so they say. I don't even think that it's clear in the New Testament, but it's definitely not there in the Old Testament. That is eternal conscious torment. I believe that this should lead people to let go of that view because the Old Testament is the foundation. It's the only Bible that the Messiah and His disciples had. It's what we call the Old Testament. The first example I'd like to look at is one that is well known. Both of these examples are very well known, not just among Christians, but among Heathens. This first example is the flood. 
the flood in Noah's day that's recorded in Genesis chapter 7. Now based on Genesis chapter 6, this is not my sermon, but I need to mention this. Based on Genesis 6, I believe that the flood was sent by Yahweh for two reasons. One, because of what the sons of Elohim did. I believe that the sons of Elohim in Genesis 6 are fallen angels. When they looked upon the daughters of men, they saw that they were fair and they slept with them and produced offspring. We call them giants, Nephilim. I believe that is one reason that the flood was sent. And the second reason, based upon the text, is because of what mankind was doing in general upon the earth as well. In Genesis 6, it mentions mankind's wickedness, evil, violence, and injustice. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 11. It says that the thoughts of mankind were only evil continually. But then it says, different about the man Noah. Noah is separated from these evil people. And in Genesis 7 verse 1, Yahweh says to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. So Noah and his covenant family, they got into the ark. And of course we know that the story teaches us that they were saved through the waters. They went safely through the waters. 1 Peter chapter 3 says... Now, whether this flood was local or worldwide, I lean towards a worldwide flood myself. The point here is that the righteous were saved and the wicked were destroyed. This is an Old Testament example of judgment. Genesis 7, 21-23 gives us a synopsis. It says, All flesh died that moved on the earth, including birds, livestock, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All on the dry land died, or all on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Every living thing was destroyed that was on the surface of the ground, including man, livestock, creeping things, and birds of the sky. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ship. It is clear here what happened to the wicked. They were not eternally tormented. They were not eventually reconciled. They died. They were destroyed. And that means that the wicked were no more upon the earth. Another example in the Old Testament of the destruction of the wicked is with two cities named Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these cities were destroyed because of homosexual practice Pride, laziness, and the neglect of the poor. Uh, Genesis 18 through 19, Ezekiel 16, and Jude verse 7. Um, some more conservative theologians only talk about um, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed due to homosexual practice. Some more liberal theologians only talk about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed due to the neglect of the poor. As I've said a lot, the truth usually is somewhere in the middle. The truth is is that the Scripture teaches that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for all of the things that I just mentioned. Pride, laziness, neglect of the poor, and homosexual practice. So Yahweh was fed up. There was an outcry about these cities. There was so much immorality going around 
about Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a great outcry. Yahweh came down to Abraham. In Genesis 18, Abraham said, Surely you're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And we know that Abraham has this back and forth with Yahweh. And then Yahweh finally says, If you can find ten righteous, I'll save the city. We know there was not even that many righteous people in the city. As with the flood, a few people were saved and many wicked were destroyed. If you know the story, one of the people that was going to be saved from the destruction was Lot's wife, but she did what the angels told her not to do. When she fled, she turned around and became a pillar of salt. Um, The shortest verse in the Bible... I remember when I was a little kid, that was one of the questions in VBS and Sunday schools. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Everybody raised their hand and said, Jesus wept. And so I found the second shortest verse in the Bible. So I always ask people, what's the second shortest verse in the Bible? And nobody knows that one, but the second shortest verse, as far as the chapters and verses that are subdivided, is in Luke 17, and it says, Remember Lot's wife. In other words, obey Yahweh and obey the messenger of Yahweh. She looked back and she was destroyed. But Lot and his daughters made it out. His his son-in-laws or possibly future son-in-laws that hadn't quite yet married his daughters, they thought that Lot was joking when Lot told them, get up, this city is about to be destroyed. They said, ah, he's joking. He don't know what he's talking about. And of course, they were destroyed with the city. Genesis 19, 24-29 explains this well. It says, Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of the sky. He overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went up early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and saw that the smoke of the land went up as the smoke of a furnace. When the Almighty destroyed the cities of the plain, the Almighty remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the middle of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Again, there is no doubt as to what happened to the wicked here. I think of Abraham looking out the next morning where there had been a flourishing pair of cities there, Sodom and Gomorrah. And now they were gone. And all he saw was smoke coming up. This is actually the backdrop for the Lake of Fire text in the book of Revelation. And I would argue that you can't really understand the Lake of Fire text without understanding the backdrop of Sodom and Gomorrah and what Yahweh did to those cities. So Yahweh means business not just with His love, but also with His wrath and His judgment. But why these examples? You know, a very smart and inquisitive mind may say this after I go over those two examples. Okay, Brother Matthew, but why should we look to examples like this as what will happen to the wicked at the final judgment? Couldn't the final judgment be different from those earlier judgments in Scripture? I think that's a great and intelligent question that someone might ask. And I'm going to give you the reason why we should look to these Old Testament examples of judgment as pictures of the final judgment. And here's why. In the New Testament, the picture of future judgment gets clearer 
because we're told in the New Testament that what took place in Noah's day with the flood and Abraham's day with Sodom and Gomorrah, both of those are examples of what will happen to the wicked in the future. So it's not just that I'm giving you Old Testament examples and saying, look at these. It's that the New Testament authors and speakers say that what will happen in the future, you can understand that to some degree by what took place in the flood and what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, reading out of the CEV, this is the words of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah. He says, No one knows the day or hour. The angels in heaven don't know, and the Son Himself doesn't know. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man appears, things will be just as they were when Noah lived. Notice he's talking about an appearance of the Son of Man and we're about to see its judgment. And he goes back and says, remember Noah. Then he tells us how some things will be the same in Noah's day as they are at the appearance of the Son of Man. He says people were eating, drinking, and getting married right up to the day that the flood came and Noah went into the big boat. When we compare this text, let me say this as a little highlight here. Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, as the old King James says, those are not necessarily bad things. It's not that Yeshua is saying, by saying this, that there will be, that these things are sins. It's not like he's talking about gluttony and drunkenness and adultery. What he's saying is, is that people are going about their day to day lives unconcerned with righteousness, not thinking about the Creator not spending any time with the Creator and focusing all upon the here and now, and then bam, all of a sudden it takes place and happens. We'll see this clearer when he talks about Lot, but a lot of people read more into that as it was in the days of Noah. They read more into that than the text actually says. So I think what Yeshua is saying is it's a prosperous time back then. People weren't considered with righteous things. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Nobody would listen to him. Then all of a sudden... The flood came and it took them away. Verse 39. uh, Let's read verse 38 again. People were eating, drinking, getting married right up to the day that the flood came and Noah went into the big boat. I like that. They didn't know anything was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. Who's the them? The wicked. The righteous were saved in the boat, right? In the ark. Swept them all away as the wicked. That is how it will be when the Son of Man appears. What happened to the wicked back then? They were destroyed. They died. That's how it will be when the Son of Man appears. Two men will be in the same field, but only one will be taken. The other will be left. This is a real popular verse on the rapture doctrine. But the Apostle Paul was never on trial for the rapture of the saints. He was on trial for the resurrection of the saints. (laughs) See? So we believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead. That's our blessed hope, not the rapture. Uh, People use this verse for the rapture though. DC Talk came out with a song when I was in high school, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Talking about the rapture. This is not talking about the rapture of the righteous. This is talking about the rapture or the destruction of the wicked. Two people are in the field, one taken, one left. Who's the one that's taken? The wicked. Who was the one that was swept away by the flood? The wicked. 
The righteous were safe in the boat. The righteous remain. Remember Psalm 37. The righteous inherit the land. The wicked are cut off and will be no more. See? Verse 41. Two women will be together grinding grain, but only one will be taken, the other will be left. Which one is taken? The wicked. The righteous is the one that's left to inherit the land. Verse 42. So be on your guard. You don't know when your Lord will come. Homeowners never know when a thief is coming. And they are always on guard to keep one from breaking in. Always be ready. You don't know when the Son of Man will come. As a matter of fact, if you continue to read in Matthew 24 and also the parallel in Mark 13, some people try to say that this passage is only in reference to the wicked not knowing. But Yeshua already said no one knows the day nor the hour. It is true that the wicked did not know when the flood was coming, but Noah did know. That's true. But if you continue to read in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, he goes on and talks to his disciples and tells them, you're not going to know either. And he says, Blessed is the servant who when his master comes home finds the servant doing his master's will. In other words, a master leaves the house and you don't know when the master's coming back. So how do you make sure you're ready? By watching the news? No, no, that's not how you're ready. How you're ready is living a righteous life. That's how you're ready. Living a righteous life. Um, we could learn a lot, I think, from the Amish and the Mennonite people. We could learn a lot from them about a simple life, a life of focus on the Lord, and a life of less stress. Simply because they probably don't know but a smidgen of what's going on in the world uh, that we do. I remember when the uh, coronavirus first hit I don't know if it ever really hit, but be that as it may, when they said that it first hit, I think a month went by and I saw somebody tweet out, has anybody told the Amish yet? (laughs) I thought, you know what? Some of them may not even know. And they're just going about their life, washing their hands, you know, taking care of their neighbor. Some of the most, they're some of the best people I've ever met at the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is the Amish. I I had a house one time right in the Amish community. And we could learn a lot from them in, in the sense of just living a simpler life. It's a little bit of a rabbit trail. My point is here is that the way that we're ready for the coming of the Son of Man is to be in the Scriptures, to love Yahweh, to love our neighbor, live a righteous life, seek how we can serve one another more, seek how we can help the poor, help the widows, those in need, give out hugs, praise Yahweh. Love one another. That way when Yeshua comes back, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. Not because we knew when He was coming back, but because He told us, just keep doing what I told you to do. Just keep doing what I told you to do. So He comes back and we're like, oh, all right. I'm ready. I've been doing what I've been supposed to be doing. But cursed is that servant who when He comes back, finds Him playing hooky. Finds Him not doing the righteous things. And he's like, oh no, be like the five foolish virgins that didn't fill their lamps with oil, right? The goats on the left hand instead of the sheep on the right hand. So as it was in the days of Noah, we have to be on guard. When the Son of Man returns, it will be a prosperous time. And there will be many people in the world that are not concerned with the righteousness of Yahweh. And the flood will come and sweep them all away. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, Peter mentions the flood in the context of Yahweh's coming judgment. Peter says, My dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters I have tried to arouse pure thoughts in your minds by reminding you of these things. I want you to remember the words that were spoken long ago by the holy prophets and the command from the Lord and Savior which was given to you by your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days some people will appear whose lives are controlled by their own lusts and they will make fun of you. They'll ask this, He promised to come, didn't He? Where is He? Our ancestors have already died, but everything is still the same as it was since the creation of the world. Has anybody ever had somebody tell them that? I've had people tell me that before. I've had people say, "Ah, I don't really want to get involved with that religious stuff, Matthew. I mean, you know, I know you said He promised to come back, but everything's the same as it was. Matter of fact, it looks like things are getting worse from time to time. Where's the promise of His coming? They scoff. They mock. Verse 5. They purposely ignore the fact that long ago the Almighty gave a command and the heavens and earth were created. The earth was formed out of water and by water and it was also by water, the water of the flood, that the old world was destroyed. But the heavens and the earth that now exist are being preserved by the same command of the Almighty in order to be destroyed by fire. They are being kept for the day when godless people will be judged and destroyed. Peter is saying Yahweh gave a command for the heavens and earth to come into being and He gave a command for the flood to wipe them out. By the same command from the same being, there is a command that in the future... This current heavens and earth will be destroyed, not by a flood of water, but by fire. Notice the last part again in verse 7. They are being kept for the day when godless people will be judged and destroyed. When we look at the flood, we see what will happen to the wicked in the end. They will be destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah is also shown as an example. Yeshua says in Luke 17, 28-30, When Lot lived, people were also eating and drinking. They were buying, selling, planting, and building. Now remember what I said back, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage? That wasn't necessarily wicked acts, but just a prosperous time. This goes along with that. As a matter of fact, if you back up to verse 26 and 27, it mentions the days of Noah. But now it mentions the days of Lot. What are the days of Lot? Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was the one that escaped with his two daughters. His wife turned around, but he escaped with his two daughters. People were buying and selling and planting and building and eating and drinking in Sodom and Gomorrah. But on the very day Lot left Sodom, fiery flames poured down from the sky and killed everyone. The same will happen on the day when the Son of Man appears. The point is is that Yeshua says, if you want to know what's going to happen at my consummating coming, you need to go back and look at what happened in the days of Noah and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude verses 5 through 7, gives us examples of the judgment of Yahweh. It says, Don't forget what happened to those people that the Lord rescued from Egypt. Some of them did not have faith, and He later destroyed them. You also know about the angels who didn't do their work and left their proper places. 
The Almighty chained them with the everlasting chains and is now keeping them in dark pits until the great day of judgment. And verse 7 is the key verse here. We should also be warned by what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the nearby towns. Their people became immoral and did all sorts of sexual sins. Then the Almighty made an example of them and punished them with eternal fire. Now, the main point here is Sodom and Gomorrah are said to be an example of future judgment. Great day of judgment, future judgment. I want you to notice the phrase eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were punished with eternal fire. The question that I asked myself many years ago when I read this was, is Sodom and Gomorrah still on fire? And the answer, it should be easy, is no. It's not still on fire. It was on fire the next morning when Abraham looked at it smoldering. It probably stayed on fire for a while smoldering. So this was a huge fire, fire and sulfur from heaven. This is the fire of Yahweh, so not the fire of man, fire of Yahweh. And it's called eternal fire. And that is because eternal fire is not a reference to the duration of the fire. It's a reference to the effects of the fire. The effects of the fire are eternal. Sodom and Gomorrah was never rebuilt. Sodom and Gomorrah is never coming back. And I believe it will be the same thing in the future where eternal fire means that what will take place with the destruction of the wicked will be there is no resurrection out of that fire judgment. And will also be eternal fire in the sense of the Greek word for eternal can mean of the age to come. Meaning it's a fire of judgment like we've never seen before. It's final judgment fire. Also too, if you make notes in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that the Old Testament last week and this week, we saw that the Old Testament has much to say about the judgment, future judgment even, of the wicked. It's not silent. It has a lot to say if we just look. Psalm 37, we saw today, teaches us that the wicked will be cut off finally, There are historical Old Testament examples of judgment. We saw one with the flood of Noah's day where the flood destroyed those that were not in the ark. And we saw that fire destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the people that were there. Lot and his daughters escaped. The wife almost escaped, but she turned around looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And progressive revelation gives us a clearer picture when we look to the New Testament. Progressive revelation means that as we continue to read the Bible, we start off in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's a true verse. But you can begin to build on that verse, building blocks, the more you read Holy Scripture. And a lot of times when you get to the New Testament, the picture becomes even more clear. Like in Psalm 110 when it talks about a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and We think, okay, we know Melchizedek. There's one text about him in Genesis 14, but we learn when we get to the book of Hebrews that Yeshua is that high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The picture becomes clear. It's like uh, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it's a little foggy, but then we you know, wipe the fog off and we read the New Testament and we say, oh, that's how we're supposed to understand that. 
So it's not that the New Testament's contradicting, but it's the building block on top of the foundation. See? The point of this progressive revelation here is that we see Old Testament examples of judgment and the New Testament. Both Yeshua and the Apostle Peter tell us, look back to these Old Testament examples of judgment if you want to know what's going to happen in the future. And it's because of these examples, and I could be wrong here, but because of these examples, I think that the future fire of judgment on that great and final day is a literal fire. It could be metaphorical. There are some people who think that it's metaphorical and they quote Hebrews where it says, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, that the fire is not literal, but Yahweh is the consuming fire and He's the one that does the destruction. It's a possibility. But I tend to think based upon the specific things that are spoken about Sodom and Gomorrah in Luke 17 and 2 Peter and Jude, that it looks like the fire is literal based upon the literal fire in Genesis 19. Um, be that as it may, the future is a, a judgment of fire. Um, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You can't put it out. Next week, we're going to look at another understanding of the word hell. And that is going to be a sermon where I discuss the intermediate state. I could probably spend a whole series, ten parts, talking about this. But I'm not going to. I'm going to use one sermon to do it. And this is because when you read like the old King James Version, we see the word hell in the Old Testament and New Testament as an English translation of many different Hebrew and Greek words. So you have many different Hebrew and Greek words, but they all come across in the English as hell. And so we might read of an Old Testament patriarch saying, oh, you're going to take down my gray hairs to hell. And he's a righteous man. And we scratch our head and we think, why is Jacob going to hell? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense because of what we've been taught about the word hell. So did Jacob go to hell in one sense of the word? Yes, he did. But in the sense of the word as we know it in churchianity in the 21st century, of course not. Jacob Israel did not go to the lake of fire. So we're going to talk about the intermediate state. In other words, what happens to... The wicked, when they die in this life, and then I'll also talk about what the Scripture says happens to the righteous when they die in this life. And then you can make a decision whether or not I'm being honest with the Scriptures. So I was taught, and I believed for a long time, that there were people right now burning in hell. I don't any longer believe that. And next week I will cover that and more. So we'll have a word of prayer and um, then we'll do our testimony and prayer request service. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this congregation. I love them with all my heart. I pray, Yahweh, that You would use this sermon in many different ways. Help us to have a better understanding of what Your Word teaches. and Help us to recognize, Yahweh, that even in judgment, even in judgment, You still are merciful. We love you, Father Yahweh. Hallelujah. Amen.